Well, good morning again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John? And let's turn to chapter 9. Now, we have been studying John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And when we came to chapter 8, we pointed out that chapter 8 through around verse 21 of chapter 10 presents really one incident that took place over the course of a single day. We uh, see that day started in John 8 with verse 2. Now early in the morning, when he came into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he, ta- and he sat down and taught them, then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us, that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Well, you remember the story and how the Lord turned the tables on these men by saying, well, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. That thinned the crowd out pretty quickly. And then he told this woman, after her accusers had gone, he said to her, go your way, and sin no more. In other words, stop living an immoral life and start living a a God-honoring life. From there, he got into a lengthy and heated confrontation with the Pharisees that made up the rest of the chapter, ending with him once again declaring himself to be the great I Am, God in human form, verse 58. And then them, the Pharisees, taking up stones to kill him for blasphemy, verse 59. As Jesus walked through the midst of them, and I believe supernaturally, because how did he just slip through them? Okay, they wanted to kill him, and then he's just gone. Uh, As he passed, walked through the midst of them and passed by leaving the temple area. Chapter 9 begins by telling us that he came across a blind man who was begging, a man who was born blind. And of course, we remember the story. He spit on the ground, made clay out of the dirt and put it in the man's eyes, told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. He did and received his sight. He had never seen. He didn't, it wasn't given back to him. He received sight, right? And his friends were astonished. And this created quite an uproar. They brought the man to the Pharisees who then began to interrogate him because they weren't ready to believe. How, how did this happen? Well, a man called Jesus did this. Oh, he's not of God. He's a sinner. We know that, you know, and, and kept badgering the guy to, to denounce Jesus and give glory to God, you know, and, and kept asking, well, how did he do it again? You know, and finally the guy gets so exasperated. He said, well, I, I told you, you want to hear it again? You want to become one of his disciples? You know, and so that didn't sit well with them. So they basically, you know, we, we, we read uh, verse 34. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and you are teaching us. And they cast him out, or in other words, excommunicated him from the synagogue. Well, it was a big deal back then. We talked about that. And this is where we pick up the story for this morning. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord? that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and worshipped him. This then becomes the segue into chapter 10, where Jesus declares himself to be the good shepherd. 
as opposed to the religious leaders of Israel who were bad or evil shepherds. And guys, I believe that John 10 is the partial fulfillment of what the God of Israel promised the nation. 600 years earlier, uh, he gave this promise to the prophet Ezekiel, where he basically indicted the uh, spiritual leaders of Israel, the priests and so on. He called them evil shepherds who didn't care about the sheep, who only used the sheep to line their pockets. That kind of thing never happens today, but just so you understand. Uh, and, uh, and here's what God said through Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34, verses 1 to 11. And the word of the Lord, Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, that's Ezekiel's title for himself, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who feed yourselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool, and you slaughter the fatlings, but you don't feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered, for all the pagan religions, basically. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the face of the whole earth. And no one was seeking or, or searching for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely, and be, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed the flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more, for I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may no longer be food for them. And thus says the Lord, Listen, I indeed myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Now you can read the rest of the chapter. It's pretty powerful. As God is indicting these religious leaders who he called the shepherds of his people, the sheep of Israel. And of course, it was a prophecy looking forward to the good shepherd. Uh, ultimately, it ultimately, it looked forward to the time when the, the good shepherd comes to reign on the earth. And uh, so on. That's the millennial kingdom. But Jesus in John 10, or John 9 and 10, are, is fulfilling uh, in part this prophecy, this promise that God gave to his people so many centuries earlier. Now, before we get into chapter 10, let's just finish chapter 9. As we said, chapter 9 is built around a blind man who was blind from birth, how Jesus healed his sight. But it was the story is also built around this blind man because he was blind spiritually. Yes, physically, the Lord healed his physical eyes. But he was also blind spiritually. And we see in the chapter how that Jesus began, or the Lord began to, the Holy Spirit began to open his eyes gradually, taking him from spiritual blindness to saving faith. As we said in verse 11, he refers to the Lord as a man named Jesus. In verse 17, his faith 
deepens a little more to the point where he refers to Jesus as a prophet. Uh, verse 33, maybe even a little, little more than that, he calls him a man from God. And who knows, maybe he thinks he's an angelic messenger at this point. But finally, in verse 38, we read his faith climax when Jesus asked him, Do you believe in me as the Son of God? Verse 35, and he responded to Jesus in verse 38, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now, guys, it's important, before we move on, to uh, state so that, of course, everyone understands this, that not all faith is saving faith. Now, he did have saving faith. He believed and was saved. Not all, saving, not all faith is saving faith. You remember back in John chapter 2, we read these words in verses 23 to 25. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles that he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So it says that many believed, but the Greek is kind of a play on words. They believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. In other words, he didn't believe they were genuine. Um, why is that? Well, they believed, but what did they believe? They believed he was a great miracle worker, maybe a great prophet. Did they believe he was the son of God, the savior of the world, sent to save them from their sins? Probably not. That's why the Lord didn't uh, accept their faith as genuine saving faith. Turn to James chapter 2. On the subject of not all faith is saving faith, of course, James 2 is a classic on that subject. Starting with verse 14, James says, What does it profit my brethren? If somebody says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute, destitute of daily food. And one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what is that profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works." Because of this passage, Martin Luther rejected the book of James as being non-canonical, uninspired. He didn't believe it was from the Holy Spirit. He believed that James was teaching faith plus works equals salvation. That's not what he was teaching. He was teaching a faith that works as evidence of salvation. Let me paraphrase what James is actually saying. He is saying, and I'm paraphrasing, if a person claims to be a Christian, in other words, if they have claimed to have faith, but has no works, in other words, no fruit, or evidence of a changed life to back it up, can that so-called faith save him? And that's the idea. James is stating very much what the Lord Jesus stated in Matthew 12, 33, when he talked about Christians, those who had true faith, true Christians, he said, you will know them by their fruit. It's always the fruit of a changed life the fruit of the Holy Spirit coming forth from a person's life that uh, demonstrates, manifests that they are really born again, right? That's all James is saying. A lot of people back then, as there are today, who talk the talk. Oh, I'm a Christian. I believe in, I always have believed in Jesus. Great, so is the devil. But James went on to say, the devil and his demons believe, so what? 
They don't believe to the point of commitment. They're not, they haven't committed their life. They have head knowledge. A lot of people that run around who have gone to church all their lives, maybe Awanas, uh, you know, youth camp, whatever it might be, and they believe in Jesus, but have never made a commitment to Christ. So therefore, it stayed in their head and has never entered their heart. And as the old saying goes, a lot of folks are going to miss heaven by 18 inches, the distance between their heads and their hearts. Look, it's very comforting to come back to John 9. It's very comforting to know that to be saved, a person doesn't have to be able to rattle off doctrine like a theologian. Saving faith is a simple faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that God became man, dwelt among us, that he went to the cross and died for our sins. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. That's the simple gospel. A child can grasp that. And you don't have to be a theologian. Uh, God made it very simple. And uh, you can be a child and be saved, or even an adult with childlike faith like this blind man, whom we see Jesus heal of blindness, both physical and spiritual. So he said in verse 38, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. Well, that's an evidence that he believed. Verse 39, and Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. <laughs> now at first glance, this statement by Jesus seems to contradict what he said earlier uh, in chapter 3, verse 17, uh, when he said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, to judge the world. It's the idea. But that the world through him might be saved. Now, if you, oh, wait, that's a contradiction. John 3, 17 it contradicts John 9, verse what? 37, 38, uh, 39. I know it was in there somewhere. It's a conflict, you know? See, the Bible's full of contradictions. You can't trust it, they said. Skeptics. No, it's not a contradiction. See, in John 3, 17, the condemnation or judgment that Jesus was referring to was the final judgment where unbelievers would be judged and sent to hell. You can read about that judgment in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Jesus hadn't come the first, this is what he's saying in John 3. He, he hadn't come the first time to judge, uh, as a judge to send people to hell. He came the first time as a savior to offer them eternal life in heaven. Whereas the judgment he was talking about in John chapter 9, verse 39 was a separating judgment. What do you mean? Well, he's separating the true from the false. The sheep that belonged to him from those who were not his sheep. How was he doing that? By declaring the truth of God, the gospel. Those who responded were judged to be his sheep, and those that did not, like the Pharisees, those who rejected him, judged themselves not to be his sheep. This chapter is going to climax in part with verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. In essence, guys, Jesus, the good shepherd, was calling to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it was up to each individual Jew whether they responded to his voice because he was their shepherd and followed him out of Judaism and into the good shepherd's fold the church or not he was calling to the lost sheep of the house of israel they were not all responding to the call and that's the separation that's how he was judging in a sense yeah it was a judgment 
but a judgment that each person chose for themselves, which side they would be on. Would they make Jesus their shepherd and follow him, or would they oppose him? It's it, it just that simple. Um, it was a matter of their own free will, just like the final judgment. Nobody goes to hell that hasn't chosen to go there. Oh, that's ridiculous, Pastor. People don't choose to go to hell. Either you're for me, Jesus, or you're against me. I mean, atheists, I'm, I'm neutral. I, I don't believe in anything. Well, that's fine. But if you're not for him, you're against him. Just letting you know what the Bible says, okay? You can be neutral all you want. But God doesn't let you take that neutral position. You're either for Christ or you're automatically against Christ. But it's your choice. Whether you go to heaven or wind up in hell is completely your choice. Now, Jesus came because he didn't want you to go to hell. God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish in hell but have everlasting life. But that's up to the individual, just like he was showing here with Israel. Verse 39 again, and Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. When Jesus said he came into the world so that those who do not see may see, he was referring to people like this blind man. Yes, he was born blind physically, but uh, was also blind spiritually with regard to spiritual truth. And he was by no means alone. There were many others in Jewish society who were spiritually blind and received no help from their spiritual leaders to see, in part because they were blind themselves. Didn't Jesus say that of these very men, the spiritual leaders of Israel, that they were blind leaders of the blind? So these guys couldn't help anyone else to see because they themselves were blind. But that would assume that uh, they wanted to help. They didn't. These guys looked down on people like this blind man and many others in society. They abhorred them. They would walk through the center of town with their robes pulled close to their bodies lest the, the wind would take the, the, the flap of their robe and brush it up against some sinner and they'd be defiled. You're not going to win too many people. To Christ, we would say, with an attitude like that. They, looked, they loathed the common folk, these Pharisees and scribes and shepherds of Israel. They loathed them and considered them fodder for hellfire and not people that God loved and wanted to redeem. You see, they weren't the sophisticated people, certainly not religious scholars like the scribes and Pharisees who claimed to know God's word better than anyone, or in other words, they claimed to see better than anyone else, see the truth of God better than anyone else. No, the people that they loathed were simple folks, again, whom society had written off because they were poor. Maybe they had to steal to, to get by or sell their bodies as prostitutes to survive. Society hated them. Society wrote them off. Society wanted nothing to do with them. And the scribes and the Pharisees led the charge. But Jesus loved them because God loved them. And he's God in human form. I mean, these were folks that didn't have a degree in theology, Judaism. And so in that respect, they didn't see. They didn't see. In other words, they, they, they were ignorant, unlearned with regard to spiritual truth. And yet these kinds of people, tax collectors, prostitutes, and other social outcasts like this blind man, seem to make up 
a large portion of Jesus' followers. Because listen, they knew they were blind. They knew they were lost. They knew they were sinners. And they were humble enough to admit that. And they were open enough to listen to what Jesus had to say. And they took it to heart. Pharisees, on the other hand, were at the other end of the spectrum. These men were so full of themselves, so filled with pride because of their knowledge of Judaism. Many were doctors of the law, had their PhDs, as we would say. So sure that they, and listen, they alone, saw and understood spiritual truth when others were so blind. They couldn't see. They were so filled with their own pride, pride blinds. And they were so filled with pride they couldn't see the truth when it was standing right in front of their eyes. The way, the truth, and the life. God made flesh standing in front of them. The God they claimed to serve and love and spend all day studying about. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, Jesus said to them, but it is they that testify of me, yet you refuse to come to me that I might give you this life. I think it was Shakespeare who said, man, poor man, so ignorant in that which he knows best. That's the, that's the human race, fallen mankind. <laughs> if they didn't believe in Jesus, yeah, that's because he couldn't be the Messiah. Because if he was the Messiah, we'd let you know. You know, even to this day, in Israel, Orthodox Jews, if you asked them, you know, why did you reject, why do you folks reject Jesus as your Messiah? They will tell you because our leaders rejected him. And if he was really the Messiah, they would have known it and they would have let us know. Wow. See, the Pharisees, scribes and all, their perceptions, they saw everything so clearly. Their perception told them that Jesus was not the Messiah. In fact, he was a crazy man who had a demon, chapter 8, verse 48. And so with every word Jesus spoke, they became more and more hard-hearted to his message and with it more and more blind to God's truth. And that is what Jesus alluded to at the end of verse 39. I came in part that those who see may be made blind. Let me paraphrase. I came that those who think they see might become permanently blind because of the hardness of their own hearts. God loved the Pharisees. There was a group consisting of Nicodemus and later Saul of Tarsus and others who had come to believe in Jesus. Jesus hung out with the Pharisees a lot because he wanted them saved. But we're only about five months from the cross at this point. He had done so many miracles. They had heard him speak and give the gospel so many times. The day of opportunity for them to be saved had come and gone. It was, it was dark, it was night, um, spiritually speaking. The day of opportunity, day of grace had ended. And now they were so locked into their hatred for Christ, all they wanted to do was kill him. didn't matter what else he said. So now he is saying to them, I came that those who wanted to see could see. And you who don't want to see, that you be made forever blind. But it was your choice. 
One pastor said this, he said, and I quote, spiritual sight comes only to those who acknowledge that they do not see, who confess their spiritual blindness and their need for the light of the world. On the other hand, those who think they see on their own apart from Christ delude themselves and will remain blind. They will not come to the light because they love the darkness and do not want their evil deeds exposed, end quote. Well, you know what? You don't really have to be a rabid militant atheist um, who loves sin so much you don't want to come to the light. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, uh, Jesus talked about those people who went to church, called him Lord, served in ministry, but never knew him. How is that possible? Oh, it's very possible. I came from a denomination, you know, as a Roman Catholic. There's a lot of Roman Catholics who really do love the Lord. Some of them go to Mass every day of the week. You can't argue with their commitment. They really do love God. The problem is they love the church more than they love God. They would deny that vehemently. But the church actually teaches salvation. I don't know if you know this. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that there is only salvation in the church. You have to be in good standing in the church, keeping the sacraments and the holy days and so on and so forth, because that's how you earn installments of grace that purchase your salvation. They turn grace into a work instead of a gift, which is what the New Testament says it is. And there's a lot of pride that goes along with thinking you can earn salvation, thinking you can earn eternal life. I go to church every single day. How dare you talk to me about God? You know how many candles I've lit in the course of my life? Wonderful, great. All that doesn't mean anything. Paul the Apostle, I, I put all my faith and trust in my religious works. Now I realize it was, I consider it all dung because now I understand salvation is by grace through faith. You don't work for it. It's a gift you receive. A lot of pride. So in that regard, Roman Catholics are a lot like the Jews, whom Paul described in Romans 10, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, the true knowledge of God's word. They being ignorant of God's righteousness, but going around seeking to establish their own system of righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness that comes from God through Christ. What does that mean? You, if you cling to religion to get you into heaven, you will never, ever make it. It's not, God doesn't want religion from you. He wants a relationship with you. And that only comes through Christ. So again, guys, the Pharisees were so blinded by their pride. While at the same time totally convinced they were the only ones who really understood spiritual things, that it never crossed their minds that they could actually be blind to the truth of God. Saul of Tarsus, good example. He was so convinced he was right and Christianity was a cult from the devil. Remember how he was like a madman pulling Christians out of their houses to stand trial? Found up there's a little pocket of Christians up there in Damascus, gets letters from the high priest to go up there and arrest them, and goes up there, and, and what happened? The Lord met him on the way, right? Bright light knocked him to the ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who is it, Lord? Please don't say Jesus. It's Jesus whom you're persecuting. Uh-oh. At that instant, he realized, 
He was wrong. They were right. Led blind to Damascus for three days in darkness, pondering his whole life. Was it all a lie? My whole life has been a lie. God said, no, no, it hasn't been a lie. Judaism was my truth. You just stopped short. You haven't gone all the way to fulfillment. Christ is the fulfillment. Saul, you've got all those years of training. They all point to my son, the Savior. I want you to go out and preach this message. And Ananias is going to come and lay hands on you. And what fell from Saul's eyes? Something like scales. The blindness was lifted. And he saw clearly that he had been wrong. And now he was determined to be right the rest of his life in serving the Lord. It's okay to be wrong. We're all wrong. At different, it's okay to be raised in the Catholic Church. I was raised there. I had good years in the Catholic Church. They taught me a lot of right things. But they taught me some wrong things too. Primarily the most important thing. How I got to heaven. And it wasn't by keeping the works of the church. By faith in Christ. But these guys were so convinced of their own superiority, spiritually speaking, how they saw when nobody else nobody else saw they were the only ones who really understood spiritual truth. Never crossed their minds they could be wrong, could be blind to the truth of God. So much so that when Jesus said in verse 39 that he came to give sight to those who knew they were spiritually blind, but also to blind permanently those who thought they see or saw, thought they saw. We read in verse 40, Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Here's how it comes through in the Greek. You're not saying that we're blind also, are you? See, in the Greek, you can... The way you construct a sentence, you can, it becomes rhetorical. By the, the Greek construction, you know that the person was looking for a no response. These guys were fully looking for, for a no response. They were fully expecting Jesus to say, oh, of course I'm not talking about you guys. Man, you guys seem better than anybody. No, 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 I'm talking about, yeah. You, you, can't, you can't be talking about it. We're, you're not saying we're blind, are you? Surprise, surprise. To which Jesus responded in verse 41, if you were blind, you would have no sin. At least you'd have an excuse for being so ignorant. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. See, the Pharisees couldn't plead ignorance. Their pride told them that they, their spiritual perception and vision was superior to everyone else's. Therefore, as Jesus said, their guilt or their sin remained. You're not going to be forgiven for your sins if you don't confess you're a sinner. If you think you're perfect. I've had one guy in my life in counseling. One man in my life, my 40 years of ministry, who sat in my office and said he never sinned. And I said, then I need to bow to you because you must be Jesus' return. <laughs> one of the guys had problems in his marriage, right? I never do. I never sin. Never do anything wrong. It's all her. Then I knew it was all him, okay? That's what I knew for sure it was all him, all right? Um, 
Pastor Warren Worsby said, and I quote, with regard to this, our Lord's reply was a paradox. If you were blind, you'd be better off. But you claim to see, therefore you are guilty. Blindness would at least be an excuse for not knowing what was going on. But they did know what was going on. Jesus had performed many miracles, and the religious leaders ignored the evidence to make a right decision. Jesus is the light of the world. The only people who cannot see the light are either blind people or those who refuse to see, who make themselves blind. The beggar was physically blind and spiritually blind. Yet both his eyes and his heart were opened. Why? Because he listened to the word, believed it, obeyed, and experienced the grace of God. The Pharisees had good physical vision, but they were blind spiritually. Had they listened to the word and sincerely considered the evidence, they too would have believed on Jesus Christ and had been born again, end quote. Well, verse 1 of chapter 10, Most assuredly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Now, at first glance, guys, uh, it seems that starting with chapter 10, verse 1, that Jesus has, you know, moved on and is introducing a whole new subject. But that's not true. Context is everything. This is actually a continuation of what Jesus was talking about to end chapter 9. Listen to me. John chapter 9 is all about a lost sheep of Israel, this man born blind, who was rejected by the bad shepherds of Israel, the Pharisees, who cast him out of their sheepfold, Judaism, and how the good shepherd found, good shepherd found him and made him a part of his fold, the church. That's the context. If you don't understand that, you're not going to really get chapter 10. But as we pointed out numerous times in our study of chapter 9, this blind man represents fallen humanity. All of us born of Adam, born spiritually blind into this world. And in that regard, we are all lost sheep that need a shepherd to lead us in our journey through life, which brings us to chapter 10. John 10 contains one of the most beautiful and powerful discourses in the New Testament, the Good Shepherd Discourse. This whole discourse centers around Jesus as the Good Shepherd in contrast to the false shepherds of Israel, the Pharisees, in this instance, whom Jesus calls thieves and robbers and said they only come to steal, to kill, and to destroy the sheep. False shepherds, whether they were in the Old Testament or the New Testament, or maybe who are living right now, are always the same. They don't care about their flock. All they care about is themselves. And guys, the New Testament especially says that they're in it for the money, the power, and the prestige that comes from being a professional minister of the gospel. The minister. The big shot. The big guy. They fancy themselves as celebrities, many of them who strut across the stage wearing their 1,800-hour Armani suits, 500-hour Oxford loafers, having come to the ministry event in their own private jet. Maybe you've heard one of these 
so-called shepherds. Jesse Duplantis just purchased his fourth jet. He needed this one because the other ones had to stop the refuel before getting halfway around the world. And he wanted a jet that could make it all the way around the world. You're going to go halfway, you know. Um, it's all you need. So he wanted a jet where he wouldn't have to stop for gas. And I think that one cost $68 million. Uh, Kenneth Copeland, well, his ministry recently purchased an $8 million jet, so maybe they're not doing as well as DeSantis' ministry. I don't know. DuPlantis, I don't know. Uh, $8 million jet. They're trying to raise at least, this was going back a little ways, trying to raise $17 million more to build a new hangar to park the thing in. Of course, he needs that to fly to ministry events as well. Whatever happened to flying coach? Okay. You know, Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. These guys are flying in private jets. Copeland did a little research. Copeland is worth over $760 million. Three quarters of a billion dollars. Lives in a $6 million lakefront mansion. Of course, the ministry owns it. These men and others like them are definitely not in the ministry to help people. They use people to get what they want. As someone has said, they fleece the flock instead of feeding the flock. And so, guys, Jesus is contrasting the false shepherds of Israel with himself as the good and true shepherd. And before he ascended back to his father, he commissioned his under-shepherds, guys like me, pastors, to conduct themselves, ourselves, as good shepherds to his sheep. To Peter, he said in John 21, Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. The Greek word is watch over and protect. Feed my sheep. Peter took that to heart and passed it along to other pastor shepherds in the church. 1 Peter 5, verses 2 through 4. He said, guys, elders, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, but not by compulsion, but willingly. And listen, not for dishonest gain. Don't be in it for the bucks. But eagerly. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears... <laughs> you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. That reminds me very much of what Paul the Apostle said. Remember when he was on his way to Jerusalem and they uh, stopped in Miletus, which is about 25 or 30 miles from Ephesus, where he spent uh, the most time in any one place, three years. I uh, love these folks. Didn't know if he'd ever see, have a chance to see them again. So the ship had a day or two layover. Sends a few guys to Ephesus and calls for the elders of the church and they come back and of course Paul addresses them in one of the most powerful passages for shepherds to read pastors but uh, the one that I want to zero in on Acts 20 verses 33 to 35 he said and I wish every minister of the gospel could say this today I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. 
I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We're done. This all sets up our study in John 10. Well, let me just say this. The church is rife with phonies, con men, hucksters, and rip-off artists masquerading as good shepherds. All you got to do is turn on the TV to see most of them. They have only one interest in the flock. That is to fleece the flock of God. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. Peter says, in their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. It's always about the money. So in John chapter 10, the good shepherd is calling. Is calling to people to come and follow him. To be saved. To make him their shepherd. And by the way, everyone's got a shepherd. We'll talk about that a little next week. Don't let me fool you. Everyone's got a shepherd. Someone or something that is leading their life. The goal of life is to choose the right shepherd. And we'll start looking at that next time. Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who is truth. And Father, we just give you our lives once again and pray that you give us grace to follow you, Lord, wherever you lead. But also, Lord, that you would continue to bless these studies in your word. That, Father, you would uh, impress on our hearts. These are evil days. But we have a good shepherd who wants to lead us in the right paths. So, Father, we thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.